Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Who Cares About the Rock Hall, a podcast about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm your host, Joe Quazala. I know entirely too much about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but that is the show's premise, and that is potentially why you're listening. Uh, with me, as always, is the skeptic, the voice of the people, the little devil on my shoulder, Kristen Sutter. Hey, Kristen. Hi. Also, potentially why people are listening. <laughs> we won't we won't take that out of the equation. That's we won't discount that. That is, you know, we will we will give you proper due. Yes, you are you are half of this. So come for my wild takes. Let's go. See if Kristen will remember anything that we talked about last week. That's really <laughs> Oh god. Oh no, is there gonna be a quiz? No, it's just, you know, you okay. know. I mean, yes. do, do you remember that you have a problem remembering? Is that an oxymoron? I think so. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll uh, we're in the thick of ballot season. It's out. We're doing our artist episodes. I'm very excited to bring in our guest today, someone who I've uh, occasionally corresponded with over the years. I'm glad it's finally happening. This guy uh, has been on the nominating committee for, based on my calculations, 18 years. Uh, he... you. Our listeners might recognize his name and voice because once upon a time, he would reveal the nominees on Sirius XM. Uh, he's also got a podcast with uh, OG MTV VJ Mark Goodman called Sound Up. Mark Goodman. We've got Alan Light with us. Hey, Alan. Hello. Hi, you guys. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Glad, as you said, glad we finally lined it up. Yeah. Stars aligned and here we are. Here Eight we are. Years on the nomcom. Well, well, well. And you're that's still longer than I that's longer than I uh I would have uh, what I would have guessed, but I'm gonna I'm gonna defer to you. Um <laughs> from the time, information time I, does pass on. Yeah, two thousand six way off. Okay, if that's I, if that sounds right to you, I mean that's what I uh, am just, seeing. So <laughs> That's quite it's some at least, time. It's you know, fifteen I would have said yes for sure. Eighteen uh -huh. starts to sound like a, a, a Scary duration, but right. Well, we can 
there we, we go. count for the for the pandemic and you're like, it's okay, true. well then maybe that does make sense. We lost some time well, there. A few years. So anyway. But also yeah. to still to stay on, I just feel like there's been many, many a shakeup in the nomcom over the years and you've survived. You're still you're still in there. Uh so I guess congratulations. Well, I'll I'll take that. And I I uh I guess I was sort of second wave on the committee, I guess I sort of think about it. Um that there was, you know, obviously the extreme esteemed veterans who started it and and set the path down. And then when that started to cycle through, um, I sort of came in, you know, in that, in that next wave um, and that, you know, and, and those do continue. I mean, we can talk about that. We continue to tweak the, the, the composition of the, of the committee. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, when they, when it's determined that my time has come, then I will, uh, uh, it's, it's so be it. This is what happens. But I still am happy to be a, a part of the a part of the game. Not offering yourself up. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I'm not throwing myself on the fire. No. <laughs> um. So I've got to imagine. You know, when you well, let's let's talk about before you joined. Were you a voter for a time before you had joined the committee? Yeah, I would have been. I certainly can't tell you when that would have started, but um, I was. Uh, a voter for some length of time before joining the committee. And I really remember, I was thinking about it the other day. I started my career, I interned at Rolling Stone between my junior and senior year of college. And then I came back and worked initially in the fact-checking department at Rolling Stone and then writing more and more and became a senior writer there. And that's all in the sort of late 80s, early 90s. And I remember early, early on in my fact-checking days, fact-checking the program for the you know second or third because the deal was if you would do you know you if you would do the the uh contribute to the fact checking effort they would slide you a seat at some distant table for the ceremony nice and so it was the year that the kinks went in and wilson pickett went in and i think it's probably 1990 1990 yeah yeah so it's you know just a and that's the first that i would have committed like the waldorf oh yeah yeah it was still at the waldorf for quite a while at that point, I mean, Prince is still at the Waldorf. So, um, but that's, you know, whatever my first association or affiliation and the first time that I would have gone to a ceremony goes back uh, a, a really scary amount of time. Yeah. I mean, not only is that Waldorf, but that's, in my opinion, more memorably jam era. Yes. Where, <laughs> where it's not produced like for television. Wild no, jam era. Free, free for all. It I was is... not there for the, you know, Dylan, George and Ringo, you know, mm-hmm. Keith like that. It was not that year, but it was, uh, but yes, when that, when it still all ended in a free for all was. Yeah. There's, the there's, there's something, uh, you know, oddly charming about that, uh, that era and it's, uh, it's beautiful mess is how I'll put it. Fair enough. Glad that I got to witness it. Um, not sure, you know, had its many charms, but uh, sometimes felt like you would be there all, truly all night. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, not produced for television. There's, <laughs> no. there's probably no stage manager keeping things moving. It's just uh, however long it takes. So, yeah, so I was so those were early sort of I was around for a lot of the formative stuff at Rolling Stone as it was taking shape and taking flight. And then um, at some point was, you know, added to the voter roles and then joined the committee Um Whenever the hell it is you say I I did. <laughs> yeah. And this was and this was not uh as a result of a campaign uh to join the committee. This was just you you got the call. I'm assuming I mean there's a bit of a pipeline from Rolling Stone to the committee to some degree. 
Yeah, I mean, I had obviously long been, I left Rolling Stone. I was one of the founding editors of Vibe magazine. I was the editor-in-chief there. We acquired Spin. I was the editor-in-chief there. Um, I launched my own magazine uh, that published for a couple of years until our money went away. And this isn't until after all of that, that I was brought onto the committee. But I, you know, I am one of the few who was, who's able to say that I left Rolling Stone, you know, on good terms, mm-hmm. on good terms with Jan, on good terms with, you know, the the company. And so, you know, even when I was going and doing other things, um, you know, I, I was, that was always when I was freelancing again, certainly I was brought back in to do stuff there. And, um, you know, I, I, I never cut ties with the place and they never, and they never dumped me. So yes, um, I would have still been within that, that orbit. Mm-hmm. The, the, the friendly, uh, the yeah. inner circle. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, so the nominating committee used to, uh, convene as we understand at the Rolling Stone offices. It's now uh, at the iHeart offices. Uh, and you know, we, we, you have seen changes as we have seen changes. Awesome. That's just like, I would say that is such an emblematic, di- just that shift. to that shift, you know, from it being at the Rolling Stone offices to being at the iHeart radio offices. Are they, are they just called iHeart media now? I think, right. Whatever. Yeah. And, and yeah. John Sykes, whatever his title is at iHeart, but as a, a, you know, one of the top executives at iHeart is now the chairman of the board mm-hmm. for the Hall of Fame. So mostly these yeah. are, you know, conference rooms that we don't, nobody has to pay extra rental space for. So I would, you know, they're, it's not like they are chosen out of, uh, you know, they're chosen because of, uh, they're, they're easily at hand for Ooh, yeah. the, for Just the senior. Just meaning like, uh, like the seat of power has yeah. shifted. You know, the capital is no longer Rome. Like <laughs> right. that uh, is what I, I'm saying. Like, I feel like uh, that, that is, uh, when did that happen when Sykes became the, uh, chairman? Yeah. I can't remember the exact sequence. Rolling Stone moved out of, the offices at 1296th Avenue, where those meetings always had been um, when they, you know, after the the sale to Penske. And so they moved into different offices and John took over chairing the board and somewhere out of all of that, the, you know, the, the location moved. And I wouldn't look, read whatever symbolism in it you choose. That's fair enough. But there was, I don't think there was any particular Stra- strategic. Oh, yeah, I don't think of it as like a, that. you know, yeah. anybody had like a big, you know, chessboard out trying to figure out how to get their hands on the, you know, right. hall. I just mean it like, oh, wow, we really have shifted away from the seat of power being Rolling Stone, which had had been for so long, yeah. I guess, just traditionally. So, I mean, you know, obviously because of its founding. Um. And yeah, I mean the you know I mean I think what the where the where the question was going, um, I I think I haven't really you know there hasn't been any particular s- structural shift in the way that the meetings are conducted. Um, they've sort of been different pieces that have formalized over the years, but um, it hasn't really ever sort of radically been redone. Um, certainly during my tenure of how the meeting operates, which is. Everybody brings their everybody everybody preps and brings their two picks to the table, and they're uh, you know kicked around and 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 debated, and uh, the votes are tallied up at the end, and a ballot comes out of that. Um, that has not you know the composition of the committee has obviously changed. People have gone off. People have come on. Um, the uh, the location has changed, um, but the way that the meeting runs. Um, 
I don't think has has gone through any particularly drastic transformation. Mm-hmm. It's funny. We haven't had like a minutia conversation <laughs> in a while. Like in the beginning of the show, when we were talking to nominating committee members, this was all brand we new. Like, What's it like? What happens behind the curtain? chamber? And yeah. it's, it's giant. We, I do know that there is a big sandwich that goes down the center that's of the never table. That's never been true. That's, that's never been true. I know. I have, it's in Kristen's head. And... That there's a big there's I will a not speak. I will uh, allow the, the sandwich, the visions myth. of sandwiches to it's, dance it's in your head. one long sandwich down the middle of the table. I know this. Uh, we, so that we, Honestly, got... this, this myth comes from the fact that <laughs> some of the old timers from the Seymour Stein days, including Seymour Stein himself, on this very show uh, would always bring up the catering yes. from, I believe, Car- <laughs> Carnegie <laughs> Deli. Uh, and it, it was always like, it felt like that was sometimes more important than the proceedings at hand. Definitely part of the awesome. part of the ritual. Um, <laughs> and then I know that there was a thing for a while. I mean, I, I'm trying to remember again. I don't remember almost anything, but uh, I know that like with people, people are not allowed to zoom in again. Yeah. Is that like back to it or, or has that changed? I mean, I, well, obviously it changed during, you know, right. during zoom years, it was whatever we could do. Um, and it is wildly, you know, it is very much discouraged. Um, the reality is that there are some touring musicians um, who are on the, the committee where, you know, that's, you got to address it as it happens. Um, people get sick. I mean, in, in a COVID world. Yeah, so and now it's not been... like people aren't, you know, like, oh, they weren't dedicated enough to come in sick. We're yeah, all, yeah, yeah. Everyone's like, please stay home. It. Yeah. <laughs> it, is, I mean, it is very much a focus on, you know, everybody that can be in the room should be in the room. Um, I can't say that's 100% when there are reasons, you know, mitigating factors. There was, this year, there was a snowstorm. Some of the mm. LA people oh. were 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 trapped and and actually couldn't get in and some just made it um on delays and and just made it and some were the we're not going to be able to get there and so that's you know you're not going to penalize somebody for that mm-hmm. right interesting uh yeah no we when you you've survived one what they called the purge, which I think was around 2015. We've talked to a lot of the purged members from the nominating (laughs) committee. And that is, that is their phrasing. Um, But uh, I know that there there was a a not purge level change this past year. We just talked to Daniel Smith, who is now on the committee with you. Um, And yeah, I mean, like, do we, do we find these types of changes are, there's been a lot of we're being candid about the the hall uh women and diversity in general uh it seems like these changes are kind of on the right path in that regard yeah look i'm not gonna i'm glad that danielle came on and i'm glad that she offered it up because i'm thrilled to, to my very very long time friend and colleague danielle is part of this process i'm i'm uh delighted by that but everybody has their own level of comfort about whether they reveal that they're that they're there or not so i don't Mm want to put anything out that 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 they don't put out themselves um wise move but sure i mean the (laughs) The shadowy cabal yeah but look the reality (laughs) is of course we know what um the you know that the institution has all you know has always looked to evolve and that needs to go through the voting body that needs to go through the nominating committee that you know that you you need to continue to refresh and keep up with and, um, you know, try to mirror the history and the story as best you can. And I think that, um, you know, I think recently that 
with the those who uh, those who are in charge of these decisions and putting the committee together and making those asks and everything else. I I love everybody who's come on this year. I think there were great additions that really represented not just um, gender diversity, not just racial diversity, but also stylistic diversity. Mm-hmm. Also people who are in from sort of different corners of the music community and, and speaking for different constituencies and different communities. And, um, and look, it should not be the same, you know, the same guys are there forever hammering out the same fights decade after decade. Um, you know, I don't know, do is, is, I don't know that it needs to be formalized or that it would be appropriate to formalize in term limits. But I think as an idea, there's a certain point where you feel like, you know, I've had, I've had my say, I've had my shot. You don't want to lose the institutional memory. Obviously you want to retain some connectivity to how this thing has evolved and to where it has come from and to, okay, these are things we've talked about in earlier years and this is the way that's played out and, you know, be able to think about it within the the sort of institutional framework. But I don't think that you want that to just calcify and, and never move and not recognize, um, the, the, you know, the, the, those who are eligible change, those who you want to be coming to the museum change, you know, all of this stuff is a living and evolving thing. And that should, that should be recognized. And, uh, I'm really happy with, you know, certainly the most, the, the recent steps um, taken to try to address that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't keep adding. I mean, that's the other thing is yeah. you can't just have, you know, all of a sudden there's twice as many people in the room. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's an entirely different thing. I mean, it's gotta be a, a manageable number uh, to be I, able I feel to do like... this as a meeting. So it, yeah. if it isn't strictly one in one out, um, you, you know, you need to, sort of keep an eye on that so that it doesn't just completely spiral out of control. And that's, you know, and everybody recognizes that. I want to say you you may have been there in years where, because I think it the number now is not quite as, uh, you know, maybe maybe the number has been pretty stable since you've been there, but there I think there were some years in the beginning and maybe not, maybe kind of the middle period where there were just, it seemed like there were way too many people. And I don't know if uh, you ever experienced that where it was like, this is getting out of control. If everybody brings two, we've got <laughs> right. It's exponential. Uh, so, um, you know, so all of those are just the, you know, those are the realities of it. And everybody who's, you know, everybody who's been there and and is no longer there is great. And everybody that's been coming in, I'm really, really happy with. It's not, uh, you know, it's not uh, about the about the worth of those people, you know, their ideas, their contributions. Every year, I think all of us walk away. You know, this sounds really cliched, but I'm sure you've heard it. Um, you know, I- excited and inspired that everybody kind of brings their A game, takes this really seriously, um, brings in reasoned selections, make- makes their case. Some I agree with, some I don't agree with, but no, you know, nobody take nobody gets the floor and and then you know doesn't bring anything. And mm-hmm. I think that's always you know it's just always a rewarding thing to feel like. Okay, I, I I am the first to grant this is an imperfect process. I think anybody would agree it's an imperfect process, but I can't come up with a better way to do it other than continuing to improve the ways that we do it, which I think we continue to do. That's great. Um, well, well, well said. <laughs> um, any now you, you don't have to answer this question. Do you want to take credit for anybody on the ballot this year? 
Uh, I will be honest and say this year that I will I cannot take credit for anybody on the ballot and that the people that I brought in did not make the ballot. Oh. Um, are, you open, pretty, are you open to sharing those names? Um, I guess that I will, since this is just me. Um, and sure. I will say, you know, without, uh, yeah, um, the ones that I brought in this year, I brought back the White Stripes mm -hmm. and, and I brought in Outcast. God bless oh my you. God. Oh, Those are who I brought. I'm not going to, I'm not okay, going to have Alan, You don't have it's, to say anything else, but I'm just glad. I mean, listeners to our show know that I will. We have found the outcast snub in particular to be uh, I don't egregious. Mystifying. Snub, snub, whatever. You know, I'm not going to, I won't rehab, rehash the debate, but I will say those are what I brought. And you know what? It's uh, what I always say. It's a long game. Mm -hmm. You know, we know that. I'm glad to know they're in the taken, mix in the room. It's taken that years. Just, it's, um, uh, it's wild so, that that wasn't enough, but uh, that just the, the just saying their name didn't. I, and I recognize that it's tricky because, yeah. you know, we're backed up on I mean, Tribe Called Quest. You know, I'm, I, I can't argue with them getting another shot that, you know, that there's there's support for them and that, uh, and that they've gotten there. I can't, you know, Rakim is maybe my favorite, maybe the greatest MC of all time. Um, I'm certainly not going to for one second argue against Eric B and Rakim being on that ballot. And the reality of you do, you know, you don't want to split it a million ways within any particular genre or you give mm -hmm. the voters an impossible job. So no, you know, I, I, I completely understand all of those things. Um, but, uh, but I expect that I will bring that back and fight for it again next time. Yeah. I'm surprised that neither of those were included. So we do a draft every year and like, we always draft. I mean, how long do we think is going to be on I've, the ballot? Yeah. It's like who we think was going to be on the ballot. And I have drafted outcast many times. They are usually as the have I, since and, we started this show, yeah. since they became eligible. Um, it's, you know, and the, the one thing that we, that uh, I think both of us shared this opinion, which is that like, it's interesting that, the hall seems to clear a path for newly eligible uh, hip hop artists that are superstars like Eminem and Jay Z, but have not done the same for Outkast. That's all. That's all I'll say. They, you know, they are at a level where it seems like you put them on the ballot, they're going to do well the same way that we put Missy Elliott or that we put, you know, whoever of these newly eligible superstar hip hop artists and to put them on the back burner because of uh, people who chronologically are should come first, you know. To that point, I'll just say that I backed out of Outcast last year because of Missy mm -hmm, going exactly. to the ballot, mm -hmm. and I said, you know what, I will, I'll push because if Missy goes, you know, she that that's going to happen. Take yeah. the win. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't want to. I, I don't think that we should step on that. And so I'll, you know, um, so, but you know, it's okay. We come back and do it again next year. It's all right. I'm yeah, just again, yeah. like I say, I'm glad to hear that they're being mentioned. I am shocked. I'm surprised, you know, that that I I think we we you know we talk about this all the time and everything, and it's just like I think sometimes in the in rock, you know, the like more guitar based rock genre has gone out of order all the time, <laughs> you know, and I I think like you it. I don't know. I, I, I love tribe. We also always yeah, advocate for them. They're amazing. great. The, the, the thirst for them or the, you know, the appetite for, for them, uh, you know, with the voters. We'll see. I don't get hung up on the chronology stuff so much. You can't. And everybody has their own perspective on this. And I understand all the feelings like, of course, this one should go in before this one, mm -hmm. but you just back, you know, you endlessly back yourself up. And particularly in the earlier years, 
you know, I was clearly brought in to be one of the purposes was to sort of be a hip hop advocate. That was the world that I, you know, came out of and having edited Vibe. And that's what I did at Rolling Stone. And um, I think that especially early on, those of us who were sort of from that wing of the committee really did sort of look, you know, try to view it tactically and mm-hmm. try to find, way, again, where are the wins? Like, like who can we this, get may, this may leapfrog somebody chronologically, but they, if we can get them in, let's get them in. We'll sort people. it out later. Let's get more <laughs> bodies representing the, you know, this, this genre in, and along the way we can go back and fill in, you yeah. know, and, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, as long as the story adds up the right way down the road, let's not freeze people who could get in, even the name of people that are going to be harder to get in. Right. Cause you, you wind up getting zero when you could have gotten one. Like I think an, an, a hip hop induction for anyone is good for any further hip hop inductee you know it's just, it, you you take the wins where you can get them and though and in, and that's true in general i think that that's been true i think that one thing that's been very that was really a a bad spot for us for a long time which i'm sure you've also discussed you know is the sort of post punk space um i think that yeah. for a while we did a terrible job of Let's try the cure. They don't get in. Okay, let's try the Smiths. Okay, not that. Then what the about the replacements? Yeah, you know, right. about, and and I think that voters kind of sense that of like, well, if they're not even committed enough to really, you know, dig in with one of these, then I I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't care whether it's this one or that one. And I think that it was a uh, a significant moment when the cure got in delivered that performance that they delivered. Mm. That was one of those like everybody in the room going okay. I get it. Mm-hmm. No argument. That's a Hall of Fame band that, you know, you did, you started to see that lane open up in a different way where then Depeche and then Duran and George Michael, you know, in a, from his space. And like that, you know, you, you sort of saw a, a crack open up and, and let a bunch of worthy stuff come through. Mm-hmm. So that's true. You know, that, I mean, certainly that was true for hip hop um, and it was true in, in that world as well. And I think those moments of, oh, OK, this is Hall of Fame worthy. Those are important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of hip hop, I want to briefly touch not briefly. I want to begin to talk about Peter Frampton, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, who, who will be the, the subject of this uh, episode for the rest of the conversation. And I guess I just want to start with, I mean, you co-wrote his uh, autobiography and I, I would love to know the origins of, of that. Yeah. I had the the pleasure of, of co-writing. Do you feel like I do with, with Peter? Um, the origins are really his um, his management, uh, his manager, somebody that I've known a long time and who was a very big fan of the the one other memoir that I have co-written, which was Greg Allman's uh, My Cross to Bear. And I think that they felt that was, a, you know, if not a, a simpatico story, at mm-hmm. least that that was the kind of a you know, of a, of a, of a story and the kind of approach that they wanted. Um, and they were the ones who contacted me, um, about doing it. And I didn't have, I, I, you know, I, I imagine I'd met Peter, but we certainly didn't have any particular history before that. It was really those guys, you know, bringing us together. Um, but, um, you know, they're all those, those projects are all chemistry. You have the meeting and say, listen, I'm not, nothing personal. Like if this feels like a good fit to you, then great. 
Mm-hmm. Um, if it doesn't, then no offense taken. Um, and so we, you know, met a few times just to see if it was felt good to do it. And then, uh, and then we're, we're off to the races working on the book. Um, and he was absolutely a, a dream to work with, um, as you know, number one with a, not just with a good, you know, particularly good memory for stuff and the ability to, to articulate, uh, what his feelings were through different phases, but also very involved in, I mean, he, he reread and re-edited every word. He was responsive to every question. Um, he was very hands-on about trying to really, you know, nail everything down on this A thing. A true co-author. Yeah. And that was great. I mean, these can be very different things. Um, somebody can be like that, or they can just sort of do the thing and then let you figure it out and, you know, and that's fine too. Um, but this felt like, uh, you know, a, a close collaboration. Um, and uh, he was just, you know, super responsible and organized and timely and all the things that, you know, you just appreciate trying to get very rock and roll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah organized. Uh, uh, <laughs> organized and timely. Yeah. Were you a Framp head before this? Were you a... Uh, I'm, you know, I, I was a know. fan, is but that honestly, his, that, is that what his hand? Yes, it's. Are it's, they called? Uh, are they called fan like, I don't know. I'm trying clumsy. to think. You're doing off the dome, <laughs> and no, I, I'm making it up as I go along. Let's see, P. I don't the know. Framp Camp. The yeah. Framp Camp. Were you part of the Framp Camp? Good job, Joe. I was. Let's say let, I was a casual fan for sure. I was not um, not a super fan, which I actually think is can be advantageous for mm-hmm. these um because i do think that there's you can get you know you look i mean uh, you, as, as you've talked to enough people to learn like we care about the details so much more than they do mm-hmm. right they don't think about they just they're doing it they're in the middle it's like when you read any you know the beatles don't know which songs were on rubber soul and which songs were on revolver Mm-hmm. Like they really have no idea. It's just all happened at that time. And we obsess over all of that stuff. And you go in and ask them, they're like, I don't know, you know? And so on the one hand, you want to be informed enough to be able to follow the breadcrumbs and be able to get to the details that the super fans want and, mm-hmm. you know, sort of know what to do. But on the other hand, I think you can get lost in the weeds if you're really, if you're just coming from that, like I it's this one show where this thing, you know, mm-hmm. that does not add up to a book that, you know, anybody else particularly wants to read. Yeah. So look, I had Frampton Comes Alive when I was a kid. Sure. Um, I, you know, I knew the, you know, some of the stuff I'd seen him, you know, I'd, I'd seen him play. Uh, I knew the outlines of the, of the story. Um, and, you know, and we, when we and went. Now you really know. <laughs> now I really know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and you know what? Let, we're going to take a quick little break, but when we come back, we will really get into that uh, along with my patented categories. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hey, are you enjoying this episode? Sign up for additional exclusive content on our Patreon at patreon.com slash rockhallpod. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. 
Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We hope you had a nice break. We hope over your break, you got the chewing done that you needed to get done. Okay. <laughs> Whatever okay. that means. I feel like, or you, you know, you're ready to chime in when needed. Okay. There's you know, two sides, the same coin. All right. So let's, let's talk about Peter Frampton. And I, I want to, uh, you know, he has a, an interesting story leading up to his solo career. Um, you know, born in England in 1950, uh, actually went to school with David Bowie as a youngster, which is, you know, and they would cross paths a, a few more times uh, over the years. As a lad, as a lad. And as adults uh, as well. Um, but you know, he, he was a, a guy who got into music really early on and around 16 is when he joined a band called the herd as their guitarist and singer. The early stuff really is fascinating because I mean, I look going to, going to school with David Bowie and singing Buddy Holly songs together on the school steps as kids and all of that stuff is obviously just sort of astonishing as a thing to think about. Um, and we'll come back to what David meant to Peter in his life. And then later in his life was, you know, is a really significant part of this story and a really sort of powerful thing. But yes, he joins, you know, he, he actually, you know, starts to kick around in some of these bands prior to the herd. Mm. Um, and one of his bands is, uh, sort of discovered and, and, uh, taken under the wing of Bill Wyman, from the Stones when Peter is 15, I think, if I'm remembering the year right, no older than that. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, he tells these stories and you just, you're, you're, you learn or you're reminded of what a tiny little scene that London rock and roll, you know, swinging London thing was. And he'll talk about being a kid and Wyman, you know, picking him up and driving him in and they go to the bag of nails or, you know, these, these famous clubs. And he'll say, you're sitting there and it's with, you know, he saw Hendrix play with, you know, John Lennon at the next table and Townsend on the other side of him. And he's there with Bill Wyman and the other stones are there. And he's just like some kid who got dropped into this, but mm -hmm. you realize like, it's just this tiny little set of them. And they mm -hmm. all hang out together and they're all going to the same bars and they're all going to the same clubs. And if you were inside that, then like, that's what it was. That's where you were. And it's just so crazy. And then you think about, you know, Mick, whatever, the Stones showing up at Beatles sessions or John and Paul singing on We Love You or, you know, Jimmy Page playing the sessions with the Kinks and the Who. And like, it's it's such a, this just little sealed up, <laughs> you know, tiny community that you know uh, that I'm sure in the moment you had 
they had no sense of what that was going to mean to history, what that was going to look like 60 years later. It, they all, it, all of it sounds like scenes in biopics that you wouldn't believe. Right. That you would say, well, that, like, clearly that's like five different things combined. Yeah. Into it. They're, they're all like, hanging out. Okay, great. Sure. <laughs> they're all seeing Jimi Hendrix play for the first time in this little club for 200 people, but the Who and the Stones and the Beatles and the Kinks are all there. I'm like, yeah, right. Except that's <laughs> what just happened. just a mural. <laughs> yeah. It's like, and, it's a really tacky mural on the side right. of some venue that uh, everyone laughs so, at. You know, and so Peter being just in the middle of this before he's even anything um, mm-hmm. is just such a, a crazy thing to think about. And then, yes, he's in this band, The Herd, and, you know, sort of re- beginning a theme that sort of will appear again in his story. He is singled out and put on the cover of, a, of one of the teen magazines as the face of 68 because mm-hmm. he's cute mm-hmm. and young he you know cute he's, that's, he's a cute that's a and cute young, guy and he's the one they take out of that band and put on the cover and that basically breaks the band up and this is not the last time that you get a version of that story from happening in peter frampton's life the everybody cute, cute for his own good the, the, for his own sorry, good. Frampton. The, the, t- the tiger beat uh yes. aspect of his looks uh yes in certain, in opposition with the goals of the serious musician kind of tears that you cry for that i realize but <laughs> it is a thing that will reappear um so yeah so that uh you know so that sort of leads to the end of the herd but out of that mm-hmm. there's this reshuffling and then he winds up uh in the in uh in a band that is sort of in the process of becoming humble pie out of the ashes of the small faces out of the ashes of the small faces that was Ooh. initially he was sort of approached to like we'll keep the small faces but it'll be you know there's a confusing like trying to retain cuz all of those weird where jimmy page you know is playing in the new yardbirds Mm-hmm. but is the only guy who was in the Yardbirds, but then that then instead they decide to call it Led Zeppelin. Like it's kind of one of those situations. They're trying to hang on to the brand. It doesn't really make sense to do that. And out of that, uh, Humble Pie is born. And this, particularly this nexus of, you know, the amazing singer that was Steve Marriott and Peter Frampton on guitar become this sort of powerhouse teaming yeah an, an early super group almost you know because you, you know almost. these guys from from other bands i mean the herd wasn't uh probably as popular as small faces but they had decent hits on on the uk charts and again he was on he was on magazine covers for better for worse let's not forget yeah <laughs> his, his status as a teen teen idol uh and uh yeah so frampton would be with humble pie for a few albums from about like 69 to 71 and i would say the the song I know most from Humble Pie from this time is from their live album in 71, their cover of I Don't Need No Doctor. This is the other interesting sort of mirror mirror image thing that happens is they make some Humble Pie albums. They make, I believe, four Humble Pie albums and are kind of growing but not exploding and then record a live album which is the thing that breaks them that will become (laughs) exactly the same story that then then follows and he says what peter says and what he says in the book is he knew 
that the live album was going to be the thing that was going to, you know, really raise their profile, that they'd gotten so good on stage that they were going to be able to capture something, you know, that they were not able to get in the studio and that that was really going to be the thing that was going to make Humble Pie a big deal. And he was sort of faced with the decision of, am I going to stay with this? Because if I'm stay if I if I'm staying now, it's going to get big, and then that's what I'm doing, and I'm the guitarist in Humble Pie. And by that point, he was having, you know, he was being drawn to the idea of a solo career, uh, being drawn to the idea of more writing, being drawn to the idea of more stuff. Because he was in again, he's also, you know, sort of concurrently playing on all these sessions in bridges, you know, leading into Humble Pie. But he continues to be in this circle where he plays on All Things Must Pass. Mm. You know, he mm. plays on the Harrison record and he's played on some of the Apple records that those guys produced. He played on this one, Doris Troy, who was a sort of an R&B singer on Apple. George produced her album, had Peter play the guitar parts, you know, on that album. So he's kind of running around in, you know, in that circle, doing stuff with Beatles and Stones and whatever. And I think has a sense of, there's something else that I can be besides the guitar player in this band. So... They record not so rock, humble. Perhaps. They record Rock in the Fillmore, <laughs> which indeed becomes a big hit. I don't need no doctor becomes a big FM radio hit, but he bails out of Humble Pie, uh, I believe, before the album comes out, mm. if I'm remembering correctly, certainly before the album hits, um, very consciously saying, I know this is gonna work, and that's why this is the time that I'm gonna have to step out. Yeah. Uh and so that would that would have been around nineteen seventy-one. Uh, and I want to now give some Hall of Fame context for because now now we're hitting the solo career has begun. The Peter Frampton solo career has begun. So let's do some Hall of Fame context because that his debut album as a solo artist, uh, an album called Wind of Change is from 72. That means he was eligible for the Rock Hall as of 1998. Never been on a ballot before uh, has had not been involved in an induction ceremony up until last year. When he came out to play, uh, play along, and, and and ripped uh, a, a solo, ripped a solo that, was, that brought was the shredding. He was shredding with Cheryl Crow for uh, "Every Day Is a Winding Road," uh, and that you know, as we say, sometimes you show up, you remind people uh, who you are and what you can do, and uh, now he's on the ballot for the first time this year. Yeah, I also think that he need i mean we'll we'll get into all of this uh as we get into the solo career but i think that he it is what's interesting about you know what happens as time passes right is that mm -hmm. people do take you do take a different perspective and see how somebody continues to resonate or not um see how their sort of reputation and standing rises or falls and you know one thing that we've certainly that that's, that comes up in nominating committee meetings, but I think comes up in all of our brains is with these sort of career artists. Are you judging them in the end by their high points or their low points? Mm -hmm. Or how are you balancing their high points and their low points? And I think we said at the time, if Neil Diamond had never recorded You Don't Bring Me Flowers, would he have gotten into the Hall, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame five years earlier? Mm -hmm. I believe Paul <laughs> Simon brings that up in his uh, cheeky little speech inducting him, which I think... As I recall, Neil's speech was like, that song was great. Barbara's right, wonderful. Right, right. <laughs> She's but, terrific. But, you know, these no are the, it's, but, you know, but sometimes the, you know, the low point kind of hangs so heavy. Mm. The low points can hang so heavy over somebody's career that you kind of have to 
wait wait that out and see. Mm -hmm. And if in the end, the high points then kind of work their way back to the top. Or you just wait until there are just more artists from the 70s that we can possibly induct. (laughs) Put them on the ballot. There's literally not much competition. (laughs) Him and Foreigner. And then you just kind of, you know, let him get in finally. Well, well, we'll we'll see. It's true that he's got an open lane. Absolutely. That is for sure. Um, But, you know, um, yes, coming clearly coming back. I mean, I will say it's not the first time that he's been mentioned in a meeting this Mm -hmm. year. So it's Mm -hmm. not like this was out of nowhere, but uh, no question coming back out, playing with Cheryl last year. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes people do that and there is that feeling of that guy feels like a hall, like he's in company of hall of famers, right? You know, like, and Cheryl's speech saying, listen, the first rock show I ever went to was to go see Frampton you know, this is the guy who made me want to do this. It's that's mm-hmm. why it's such an honor to have him come out and play. Like, you know, of course that, that stuff is going to register one way or another. So, um, yeah, so it has been a long time, but I think, you know, but I think in 1998, there's no way anybody would have looked and said, we think about this guy as a hall of famer. That's before he doesn't win the Grammy, the instrumental Grammy for the fingerprints album until 2006. Yeah. Uh, right. So you're not, yeah, not, you're not putting him up against Fleetwood Mac in 1998, you know, right. it's, uh, that's not, but it, right. We, we've gotten to a point where, uh, yeah, he can be considered. Um, let's get into these categories. These are categories I've, I've concocted. Cause as we know, the hall doesn't really publish a list of criteria for the voters to follow, but this is, uh, doesn't general... publish and doesn't, and doesn't have, just... it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't have, it's like there's a secret one. Yeah. Good, good point. But you know, there, there, yeah. So uh, how, how do we do this? How do we evaluate? This is one uh, way I've kind of reverse engineered to see if uh, an artist is likely to get in the hall or, you know, if they're worthy, what, however you want to look at it. And the first category is iconic slash majorly recognizable songs. And uh, just to give some context before we get into it, uh, Peter Frampton put out four studio albums that did not do great. Uh, They were not very popular. And obviously, I mean, if anyone knows Peter Frampton, they know about Frampton Comes Alive, the live album in 1976, his breakthrough. That's where the success came. And I would say it's the the three singles off this album that are without question his definitive three legacy songs. And we'll go in order of when how he released them uh the first single was show me the way you know the the talk box is front and center uh which would is a kind of hallmark of his sound certainly for this album uh and it went to number six on the hot 100 very catchy tune classic rock staple uh you could make an argument that this is his most recognizable i mean but I'd say, yeah. So show show me the way. That's that's the first one. Mm-hmm. We're gonna do one at a time. So we can do it. We'll do one at a time. Or we'll, we'll do we'll do one at a time. Three, this yeah. is yeah. So yeah, it's like I mean, I, I want to I say mean, anything about show me the way. No, I you know as you that's that was the, I mean that out of these that was clearly like the single right mm-hmm. that was the hook that was the novelty of the talk box that was a you know radio friendly length. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, 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 of a, of a song, uh, you know, as an introduction to have its shot. Um, it was, you know, these the next two as well. These were ubiquitous, um, one right on top of the other, really sort of overlapping. Um, and if we're going to talk about 
the iconic songs. If we're going to talk about the, you know, the the classics within the the catalog, this is this is what we're talking about. Yeah, that's top of the mm-hmm. heap. I I was l- l- preparing for this episode today by listening to some Frampton, mm-hmm. and I don't like it. Um, <laughs> I I just I really it it is not it is not connecting with me. I was. I mean, I've heard these songs too. It's not like, I I mean, I remember growing, like classic rock radio has existed. My parents grew up in the seventies. My mom is the teenage girl who was like, my mom and Cheryl Crow, I think are about the same age. Like, I think like I grew up with Frampton kind of in the air, but I was just like, this is, I, I would never ever listen to these songs. Like I was like, if they came on the radio, I would change the channel. Um, but I also don't like, I recognize that other people may like them and that that doesn't mean that they are bad, but I'm just like, Ooh, this is, this is not, uh, it's like catchy enough. And I, and I know we'll get to, you know, baby, I love your way, which also, you know, maybe, got ruined in my life in a different way by the big <laughs> yes. cover. Yes. But like, uh, you know, like I was, I was, I guess I, I'm curious about the like societal moment that brought us this live album that be- was such a breakthrough. Was it just the confluence of like, you know, the novelty of this like new, you know, musical technology in a way also like him being a handsome person and then the catchiness of the song, like, the first thing that I'm super fascinated by is that period of time where live albums were the things that broke these stars. Mm-hmm. Because when you think about it, there's a bunch of them. Obviously, Cheap Trick at Budokan is mm-hmm. a similar story. The Allman Brothers at Fillmore is the same. Like they did two studio albums that nobody cared about, and it's the live album that got people excited. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a there's a bunch of these, and what a weird moment! Like, I what was happening at radio, where you would think the live stuff would sound weird, mixed in mm-hmm. on the radio, mm-hmm. but in fact, these were though you know they were the things that <clears throat> turned these people into stars, and so what like the, I don't have an answer for this by the way, but like yeah. what is going on that that was not just a document. Right, not just a souvenir of the show, not just a here's what was mm-hmm. happening at this time for That's fans to know, but actually it was the commercial like bullseye for a number of these rock bands. That always is weird to me. Yeah, and I, I grew I, up in it. Right, I, you know, it, it makes me think. You, I haven't really considered that before, but I'm recalling that like the. Radio version of Benny and the Jets has a fake live, a fake live audience. <laughs> intro. Huh. It's like, yeah, this was clearly like the trend. It was almost like you. I'm not, I'm not a big Kiss guy, but Kiss Alive certainly seems mm-hmm. it was the thing that like put them into a different. That's the version stratosphere, of stratosphere, uh, right? That's the rock and roll. I want to rock all night. Yeah, right? is, 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 is the is live one. That. <laughs> I leave that to you to, for further research, but it's a fascinating, pheno- like momentary phenomenon. Yeah, that that... this is is the exemplar of, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the and it's the thing that it isn't that it makes it difficult to talk about Frampton's career, but it's sort of like the first four albums don't matter 
because this is the like this is where people heard the songs from those albums mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right like there's no reason to talk about the recording of show me the, the studio version of show me the way like it doesn't no no one's no one's heard it and no, like, one's heard yeah, it, no it, one will hear it it's not the this definitive was, version even close. this was the thing that wrapped up that whole chapter so you know that's the discussions so some of the questions on your criteria list like don't even apply because this was the thing that kind of cleared the table and pushed mm -hmm. the reset and that's what you talk about when you talk about his body of work Totally. Yeah, no, it's it. And, and for the record, just just to respond to Kristen, I do think these songs are like impossibly catchy and, and great uh, classic rock slash pop songs. And I, um, I, I mean, we'll we'll kind of I think we might wind up reversing ourselves when we get to the foreigner episode. And I'm like, you know what? I think these songs are fun. And you're just like, ah, no, I don't know. Uh, but let's uh, we've alluded to it already. Let's get to the second single, the love song, the song that I think might actually have the honor of being the most recognizable, which is Baby, I Love Your Way. Baby, I love your way. Most recognizable, as as noted, because of not one, but two. Yes. So let, let me lay impossibly, that. Let me... <laughs> impossibly cheesy and impossibly successful covers. Yeah, let me let me lay that out here. Let me let me give the context here. So uh, you know, this is his this is love song. There's no talk box on this one. Went to number twelve in the Hot 100. Uh, you know, a, a beautifully written song. And then in 1988, a dance group called Will to Power covered the song. Pause on that band name for yeah, one second. Will to Power. <laughs> They, they covered the song uh, as part of a, a little bit of a medley with the song Freebird. And they take it to number one. They take and uh, that is, yeah, it is it is very cheesy. It is very 80s. I will say, even though that is the uh, chart wise, the biggest success, I think to this day, the version I hear the most out in the wild, weirdly enough, is the like dub reggae Big version Mountain. by the group Big Mountain from the Reality Bite soundtrack in 1994. Ooh, baby, I love your way every day. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, that is that is one that just like that is a ubiquitous song in my lifetime. I just <laughs> feel like I it's not good but i certainly don't like it, it um. <laughs> it's, it's not good but it's like i you like now i can hear it in my head it's it's mm -hmm. like it's got a, a hold on my psyche and i'm mad about it <laughs> and i can go back and blame peter frampton for this <laughs> you can and I'm i suppose going, that's true i will say that the the as he tells the story the will to power thing as god awful as it is was an absolute godsend to him because it was at a very bad time in his career and not only was that a big hit but they did not clear the publishing <gasps> and so they had to give him all the money wow that's uh, right yeah if you don't do your due diligence they can you can take all the publishing <laughs> and it's some ridiculous like it's a mix that they did like to play at, at like it was a wedding band and they did yep. this, for, you know, and it just sort of then broke on local radio, I think, in Florida and then became this thing. And so I think they didn't even like think about, oh, it's a real thing and we well, need to 
go and clear the publishing and make this legal. And right. then when it exploded, he ended up just keeping all of that money. Oof. Oh my God. And, and I will say, you know, looking at the, the Spotify, uh, numbers is interesting on this because the will to power version has 46 million the frampton live version has 87 million and the big mountain version has 286 million <laughs> that's what i'm saying dab on them go ahead i mean like, it's really and like as someone who lists i like listen to a lot of terrestrial radio uh and so i feel like i get a good sense of what is being played and like that version because also it is <laughs> You know what it is immediately because they don't start with music. They start with an acapella, just, ooh, baby, I love your way. And it oh, is yes. a, an immediate fingers going straight to the to the next number to get that out of here. But that is like, oh, for I think a generation, like the definitive version, it's, it's kind of crazy, but big mountain. Oof. All right. A, a band that I, I don't know a, a one thing about, and I, they, I don't think they've done anything else of, of note. Well, they have a best of album. <laughs> Good for them. <laughs> All right. Wow. Uh, so that's number two. Yeah. And then, then the uh, the third single off Frampton Comes Alive is Do You Feel Like We Do? song that is 14 minutes long. Uh, occasionally edited down to a brisk seven Yes. For radio, you know, uh, yeah. I the classic rock station I listened to growing up, I think played the full version. You know, well, he said, you know, Peter, they they, they did the edit, which, as you note, an edit that's seven minutes long and was still <laughs> a, a pop hit. Yeah. Um, but that really most radio, certainly most FM radio, stayed with the full, expansive, fourteen fifteen minute version. Yes. Yeah, and this is a it's a real jam kind of song. You know, a lot of talk box on this one. Yeah, I can't. I mean, if Kristen doesn't want to put in the time on this one, there's no arguing. No, I mean, that. I listen. Like, there just isn't. Either you're either you're on for that ride or you're not on for that ride. I, would, like, I tried. I got off. I mean, I was on it. It's just. Uh... I don't like it. <laughs> I do not like this man's music. And and that is, I do not say that as a, I am the arbiter of what is good and what is bad, but I am the arbiter of what I like and I don't like, and I do not like this music. I was actually thinking about it because I, I was really like, when, when our show first started, I was quite mean about the Moody Blues on the regular because I was so bored um, during their like kind of, performance i was just like what's going on and i didn't know i wasn't kind of in context at the time and joe did like an entire like moody blues episode where he just like brought me along and was like here's stuff and i remember listening to it and i was like i could see how you could like this and like i don't i, I i'm still never going to put a moody blues right. record on except for maybe in your wildest dreams <laughs> um but that's just a nostalgic moment for me but like i was thinking about that today because i was like oh like I don't even have that with with Frampton. Like I can't I it it just it missed me completely. Uh again, I leave I understand that many this was a very popular this mm -hmm. continues to be very popular. People like Frampton. My mom, Cheryl Crow, Joe Kozala, you know, that <laughs> they're out there. They're just it's not for me. It's not. There's not, it, a, there's not a, an argument. There's not an argument for that or with that. And and I think especially, again, when you get to the full, you know, the full jam, when you get to do you feel like like we do, which was only going to come as the 
That was not going to be the first single. Obviously. Right? Yeah. I was not going to be the second single, but it could be the third single. Mm-hmm. His powers and... were so great. Yeah, yeah. no, it's it like, was... well, let's see if we can get away with this one. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's just, you, again, you've just got to be, that, that's that's got to be what you're agreeing to. It's, you know. I guess you could say Kristen did not feel like <laughs> they did. Like, like they did. <laughs> I did not. Um, you know. I guess it's kind of giving me like, like the who, but who? Like, I, it's not doing it for me. It's like, it's missing. I don't, I just, it, I don't enjoy it. It It feels, I don't like, I don't like the talk box and I don't like the way that the songs sound. And well, that I is- think you've, you've formally registered your complaint. <laughs> we don't have to, we don't have to dwell on it anymore. Um, one thing, you know, all, like, like you said, Alan, all these songs come from studio albums that nobody knows uh you know these become the definitive versions but i just wanted to point out this one comes from an album slash project called frampton's camel uh which was also the name of the band and the name of the record and Um, also the name of his fan club there you (laughs) go we're all camels they're camel it's like Um, daga's got the monsters frampton's got the camel but my fun note about that band frampton's camel is that the bassist rick wills uh was in foreigner and is nominated with them this year and has a writing credit on this song do you feel like we do um is frampton uh nominated as a solo artist he is nominated as a solo artist correct yeah he's not he's not nominated as frampton's camel (laughs) yes (laughs) you never know shade's a band yes that's right That's true. Um, But in terms of the legacy songs for Frampton, that is it. It's these three songs off of this album. uh, And obviously the album was a great success, spent 10 weeks at the top of the charts, was the best-selling album of uh, of 1976. One of the best-selling live albums in general, more than 20 million sales worldwide. The best-selling album of 1976 and one of the best-selling albums of 1977. Oh, wow. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) It, it, It stayed atop for so long. Yeah. Uh, but I have to, I have to admit, uh, I have never heard another Peter Frampton song. Uh, and what's kind of bizarre is that technically his biggest chart hit was off of his next album. Uh, and it was the title track from 1977's I'm in you. I'm in you. You're in me. Any conversation about Peter Frampton really rests on there has never been, certainly in the rock and roll business, anybody who got to the highest of highs and the lowest of lows with the velocity that it happened to Peter. Mm-hmm. This was a, you know, a, a rocket ship going straight up and coming straight down. Oof. And it's, you know, again, a lot of it comes down to, <laughs> as mentioned with the herd, where he gets singled out and put on the cover as the face of 68 is there's a big push of Peter Frampton heartthrob Mm -hmm. and he can run this list. He was, he did a Rolling Stone cover where they talked him into taking his shirt off. He did. I'm in you was the follow-up, which a, he says, he says is a crappy album that he rushed. They rushed him to make, you know, he had no time to recover and process from the phenomenon of Frampton Comes Alive was just pushed back out to make a record and made a half-assed record where the lead single was a ballad and the cover is this open flowy blouse mm-hmm. that he is wearing that was, I remember it to when it had like mocked universally and 
you know, he said it was a very delicate, like as the tour went on and got bigger and bigger, it went from seeing all guys in the front and the few girlfriends who were there in the back to seeing all the screaming girls up front and the guys, the rock and roll guys in the back. And the- and also that was the decade or the generation, especially. I mean, we had we're still working on it, but like, you know, anything that young girls like is denigrated in, yeah, in culture and particularly in rock music and like a rock and roll guitar player yeah. guy like in the that's 70s. You know, yeah. So it was, you know, I mean, you is one of the all time legendary bombs and combined with that. He goes and makes the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band film with the Bee Gees. Mm, yes. The three uh, Bee Gees and I'm Peter sorry, are what? the four. Somebody oh, we don't have we don't have time. Enough time, but yes, have, there's a you have it's, it's called Sergeant Sergeant Pepper's, Pepper's Lonely, Lonely Hearts Club, Club band. band. I'm sorry, what? It's a fa- it's a famously like misguided uh, attempt to make a Beatles movie without the Beatles. Uh, and, and it, without yeah. a script either. <laughs> Oh. By the way, uh, also uh, <laughs> tends to be an issue with filmmaking. Okay. Uh, so this were on drugs. I get it. It's okay. This was one of the all time biggest, you know, too big to fail projects of all time. The Bee Gees and Peter Frampton were the biggest stars in the world. They were going to sing the biggest songs in the world. And this was a disaster of monumental proportions. And the one two punch of the Sgt. Pepper movie. And the I'm in you album absolutely exploded this career into bits. Yeah. And it's funny you, you say I'm in you bombed, but like it's funny that there was enough residual love from Frampton <laughs> Comes Alive that that song, the title track, went to number two, yes. which is his highest charting. Uh, but it's also funny that I've never heard that song in my life. <laughs> Just as someone it was who, the yeah. It was the follow up to Frampton Comes Alive. It was the record, you know, everybody was waiting. People it was coming it. after all this stuff, and it's a mess. And it, it is and evaporated a, from our culture. A, and it's a sappy ballad, which was a ridiculous thing to do for a guy who had a couple of years earlier been rumored to possibly be joining the Rolling Stones as oh the new guitar player. Crazy. <laughs> we went from that to the guy with that haircut and that open shirt singing a a sappy ballad as his new single. And it was, you know, it's uh, when I say, okay, so we're talking about Hall of Fame. Are we judging him from 1976 and Frampton Comes Alive being literally the biggest album in the world or 1978 when this movie and this album are, you know, actual punchlines? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and as we're kind of closing out this category of uh, recognizable songs, it's like, you know, he put out a few more, he would continue to put out music, and maybe he would have something you could call a modest hit uh, here and there until the end of the 70s. But, you know, again, there is nothing anybody would ever really hear on the radio now or anything anybody would remember just from it it being around. It really, it just, it kind of peters off nice <laughs> look the other i might be breaking from your category no, it's okay sort Go of ahead. the other project that i think that you need to look at when you're talking this isn't something that you would have heard on the radio mm-hmm. he you know he we can return to it but at a, at a low point in his career his old friend david bowie calls him up and asks him to come play on the album that would be never let me down and then the glass spider tour 
he was the lead guitar player and you know he feels like this really resurrected him from being completely forgotten yeah. and recentered him as a guitar player and what happens after that is it's not about being you know a pop star mm-hmm. that kind of performer it's about being an instrumentalist and a lot of got the pearl jam soundgarden those guys all come out and really claim him as an early influence as a big impact on you know them choosing to play and learning to play guitar in 2006 he releases an instrumental album called fingerprints that wins the grammy for best instrumental performance and a lot of those guys play on it and warren haynes mm-hmm. plays on it and you know lots of legendary guitar players are on there with him and that to him in some ways he would say is sort of you know more important to him than frampton comes alive because it recognized him and established him as a musician not just as like a mm. teen pop phenom that enabled him to then go have the rest of his career so it wasn't a radio hit you wouldn't know it from that right, that's right. what the project was but that winning the grammy and getting the, the the attention and the critical attention that it did is sort of this other that's the other sort of landmark piece for him good to know yeah i i feel like uh I did not uh, really register that, but that's that's an interesting uh, comeback for him. Let's go to the next category: albums that are considered all-time classics. So obviously, like there's Start there's the list. you got Frampton comes alive, uh, Frampton's camel. <laughs> you got, and that's that's. I mean, no, so, I, I, I'd say the only other thing to again, it's not the solo project. I mean, the Humble Pie, Rock and the Fillmore album, is certainly within certain rock communities. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you ask like the Black Crows. They'll tell you that's one of the greatest <laughs> records ever made. Sure. So, you know, that always with the like how strictly we're saying solo versus playing on the other things. Are that's the other one. That into account in yeah, yeah. That's the other thing that I think you would put up as a, you know, a, a long lasting sort of contribution. Album. Yeah. Um, now, Alan, have you, have you ever uh, voted for the Rolling Stone 500 list? Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Because my question is is going to be, uh, and this is what we do to kind of bridge the album category to the critical acclaim category. Uh, do you guys think any Frampton albums are on the Rolling Stone? Any iteration of the Rolling Stone 500 greatest albums list? I would think not. If I'm if I'm guessing, I would think there mm-hmm. were probably some some votes for Frampton Comes Alive from those from certain voters, you know, of a certain age Around, generation yeah. and, and sensibility. Um, it was a, you know, a sort of moment that if not an era defining album, certainly a moment defining album in that way. Um, even then it was not like a critical favorite that was going to get, you know, that. Mm-hmm. So, um, what do yeah. you think, Kristen? Well, here's the thing. Uh, I had his Wikipedia page open. So I know I, I, gl- I saw something, I'm not sure if I saw it correctly, <laughs> but I have a feeling that that there is one um i would have said yes just on the old list anyway um because i it just that feels right but maybe i don't know what his critical it seems like what was his critical uh i guess we'll get into that in a minute right, but right. Like, without really no i mean it sounds like you know with this rocket ship that went straight up and then absolutely combusted on uh you know very quickly um that that he wasn't like you know beloved by the critics or whatever but i still just think like that album is huge among boomers and they were making the uh lists especially the 2000 the early 2000s lists um 
I don't think there's one anymore in 2020, but I think if there, if there was one, it would be on like the earlier list. And so uh, Alan is correct. Uh, it is not on any, any iteration of the Rolling Stone list. And that will, will take this conversation to the critical acclaim discussion, which is, you know, the you're, Alan's right. It's not like this was ever considered to be a, an amazing artistic achievement. Uh, it was very popular. And, and sometimes just through sheer popularity, uh, an album can make it on the, onto these lists. But no. Never. And I think that that's, that speaks to some critical uh, ambivalence. Um, you know, we we look sometimes, especially because his uh, archive is very searchable, we look at Robert Criscow to see what he's got to say. Um, and on... Well, it was a different... It, they, they mentioned <laughs> all-time favorite live albums. In okay, the, sure. Yeah, and that's going to be in the conversation. The that makes sense. But here's yeah. uh, here's Robert Criscow on I'm In You, which, of course, is well, going to be brutal. It's gonna be which brutal. nobody likes. Yeah, so. nobody likes, but uh, <laughs> Frampton is a medium snazzy guitarist taking no chances on an absurdly saleable formula. That's a that's almost a generous uh, read of I'm in you. <laughs> that's right, the like yeah. ba- that's the sort of baseline, you know, like you could be a lot meaner about that record than that and, is. And maybe Frampton <laughs> himself would even be meaner. It seems like, uh, but yeah, you know, I just I don't I don't see the you know, Alan, you mentioned that the kind of later uh, demonstrations of guitar ability had maybe a little more love critically, but yeah, I would, I would never, I wouldn't position him as a critical darling, even at his height, which, you know, may have been complicated by that tiger beat uh, issue. Yeah. I think that's right. Now, look, he has champion. I mean, Cameron Crowe is the big Frampton champion over Mm -hmm. the years, including that he wrote the liner notes to Frampton comes alive. So he was on board even before that exploded. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All those millions of copies that people bought had Cameron's, you know, words there, but um, he has also, you know, kept him around. I mean, in, in, Peter was a an onset consultant for Almost Famous. Right. Um, Cameron brought him in to teach the actors what would a rock star in 1976 do? You know, what? how, how did they set up the amps? How would you wear mm-hmm. your guitar? What was, you know, he was sort of there to do rock star lessons to, you know, for the actors in that film. And... Um, you know, so so uh, Cameron is always somebody who has who has talked him up, um, mm-hmm. you know, and kept him around. And again, in the later years, I do feel like, you know, a a lot of people have come around because he's the nicest guy in the world, you know, and a survivor and has contributed, you know, played with so many people, so many sessions, so many records. And and again, this sort of reframing, I would say even the one thing I would say to you, Kristen, and you might hate this. But he did the last album that he did. He's finishing a new album. But the last album that he did was an instrumental album called Frampton Forgets the Words. And he did instrumentals of very interesting. He did a Radiohead song. He did a Lenny Kravitz song. He did like a, an interesting mix of things to to cover. He uh, the, the one thing that from that fingerprints record that people may have heard is he does a pretty fantastic Black Hole Sun mm. cover that he did with some of the Soundgarden guys. Those have been the opportunity to really listen to this guy as a player, right? To get out yeah, outside I mean, of all the other stuff, whatever, and just listen to a guitar player play. And if that's your thing, there's a lot 
that's that's rewarding in those. To be honest, it's not really my thing. Yeah, that's but fine. also, but <laughs> nice try. I'm like no, but also yeah. I what I will say, like I have very goodwill toward Frampton based almost entirely on last year's induction ceremony, which he was such a bright spot and was truly having a great time and just shredded was amazing and thrilled to be there. And that is like, that will just kind of, you know, I, I bear him no ill will. I have no, no. goodwill toward <laughs> him. Understood. But, but understanding like, what the I resistance. If I ever had to listen to a Frampton song, I w- I'd really be, I, it wouldn't be my favorite <laughs> Uh, you know, I like him though. Okay, good. So we, we, all right, let's, uh, let's, let's breeze through some of these other categories, commercial success. I mean, it's all pretty much concentrated around, uh, comes alive, which was, as we've said, a colossal hit, you know, I think 20 million records or something, uh, you know, and that's, you know, that's kind of the totality of it. You know, nothing ever even got close to reaching those heights, but you can't say that that album wasn't uh, a hit. And again, what's so weird about this, that conversation, like we said, is that being because it's the thing that wraps up the four albums that precede it, right? Like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's the massive moment of that. But how do you even like when you look across the catalog, you sort of chop off that whole first part of it because it's it's rendered redundant by Mm -hmm. what comes alive is. Yeah. Um, it's almost like those, those are the songs, Peter's version. Right. Um, let's go to the, the next category longevity, which, you know, we've been talking about to some degree. It's like, he was very, very popular for what do you want to say two years? And then like the, the drop-off came. So that's, I think that's a, that's a bit of a hurdle for him in this conversation. You know, obviously he can, he continued to make music and, and perform live. Uh, but it's kind of the, the long cycle of that one album that's his imperial phase. And again, a little bit how you def- define longevity. I mean, certainly there's commercial longevity, but then mm-hmm. there is the, okay, then, uh, you know, Bowie takes him back out and he tours as a featured performer with Bowie and he plays on that record and he plays, you know, and he does the instrumental stuff that he does and he's mm-hmm. done the other sessions and he continues to tour like sort of relentlessly for a long time. So it's not the scale on the one hand, it's not this nowhere near the scale of what his the peaks are, mm-hmm. but he does continue to stay out there, continue to do stuff, mm-hmm. continue to show up in sort of sometimes interesting places, um, you know, over a long time. That's what I'm like. In 1998, nobody would have thought about Hall of Fame. Yeah, but, no, it's, it's but, true. But in those 20 whatever years since then, um, there's a there is a different frame, you know. It's always going to be the frame is always going to be Frampton comes alive, but you're looking at it, I think, through a different lens of somebody who did recreate himself, did sort of open a different lane for himself and was recognized, as we've said, from a lot of these, you know, these 90s rock guys as somebody who was important to them. Well, that's I'm I'm glad you brought that up because the next category is influence. And when I was looking at this, I genuinely didn't I wasn't I feel like I don't exactly hear it. Um, you know, and we have Cheryl Crow mentioned it was her first concert. So there's that. And then if you, I don't know, if you think about the talk box, I guess, like, I don't exactly know. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. say that like Daft Punk, for example, was like drawing from Frampton Comes Alive. Exactly. Although there's certainly some sonic similarities. Uh, but yeah, I guess some of these, these 90s grunge guys, ha- according to uh, your research, have 
have brought him up. And so I, I guess that's where it well lies. have brought him up and have and have worked with and him. have worked with him. I mean, yeah, have, you know, and it's a little bit like you know, it adventures a little bit into sort of the kiss argument, right? I mean, that's. You, how can you be that life. big that you don't uh, have well, some sort of influence? And that, you know, it was, you know, I mean, it was Tom Morello specifically, but then it was all of those guys saying, kiss are why I picked up a guitar. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That is where I learned what this is. That is the reason I do it. And I think there's a certain amount of that, that if you're that age of, you know, the, the 90s, the guys who broke through in the 90s, that was what a rock star was, you know, that totally. was, if not your first, certainly a very early and very central exposure to, Hey, here's a guy who plays a guitar and is, you know, this level of massive superstar, you know, and playing 14 minute instrumental jams, not like, <laughs> you know, and you can do that and be really big. And I think that those guys, you know, will say that was a thing that they, that registered for them. And, and, uh, Mm -hmm. that's the credit that they'll give. I don't know that it's a specific, you know, something in his playing that they draw from. I think it's more that idea of that. That's where we saw what this is about. Mm -hmm. um, the next category is artistry slash skill. Um, you know, it, it's come up already. He's, he's a good songwriter. He's a good singer. He's, he's a, a good guitar player. Like he's triple threat, I guess you could say in that regard. Um, and uh, I wanted to just there's a fun little story that speaking of guitar player that I just wanted to bring up that he I, I love the story that he had this special guitar that he liked to play throughout the 70s that was presumed lost in a cargo plane crash. But then they found it and returned it to him in 2011. It's a fantastic oh, wow. story that we weave through. It's how the book opens. And then we because every few years, you know, he plays the same guitar on Rock of the Fillmore and Frampton Comes Alive. It's the mm -hmm. same guitar on both of those albums. And it is the guitar he's holding on the Frampton Comes Alive cover. I mean, everybody sees it. Like, it's the gatefold. Mm -hmm. it's and iconic, that's yeah. the one he's holding up. And that thing went down in a plane crash that the plane burned up and everything was presumed lost in South America. And he just assumed, okay, that's it. You know, that all, all the equipment is gone. And then a few years later, somebody kind of mentions, it's in like, it's in a, there's a pawn shop in Colombia, not even in the same country, and in the, oh like God. the neighboring country. And then they may have it and they try and follow up, but then they, it's a dead end and they can't get through it. And then somebody else goes and there's another. The thing, the thing becomes, it was somehow thrown from the plane, snatched up, grabbed by somebody. They held onto it in a closet for however many years. They took it to a pawn shop or a music shop, tried to trade it in. And somehow somebody who worked in the music shop figured out this was from that plane crash, figured out what it was. Then they contact him. They go through all the, like, the the, the, the FBI is involved because they, they don't want to turn it over because they're afraid they're going to get arrested for stealing it. So they have to broker this whole, it'll be accompanied and the cops will do the thing and then they have oh to authenticate. God. But it did come back to him, um, you know, however many years later, and this, the, the, the Phoenix... <laughs> risen, from, risen from the ashes um, is to the uh, is the guitar. It's a, an amazing story. It's really it's so so improbable and uh, <laughs> really really fun. 
Um, all right, let's get to the last category. Sometimes the most uh, important category because it speaks to the ubiquity of an artist, which is, does my mom know who they are? And this one, I mean, Kristen, you've already naturally answered it yes. throughout the episode. Uh, but yeah, my mom knows she's also the right age for this. And like, yeah, if you, especially if you were around in the 70s, you know who Peter Frampton is. He was colossal. But also because he's been such a classic rock staple, I, yeah, I I think he's just widely known. Like, and it's worth noting, appeared on The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. Yes, a great episode, Homer Palooza. It's yes. a really good one. Appeared in a story arc on Madam Secretary. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know that one. <laughs> <laughs> Was the, they hired him to be the wedding band? It's I don't know. Something. Okay, okay. Um, so and then there's another one. There's a couple of those. Like, again, because he is so representative of this sort of time and place. Yeah that's been called on to right. show up in some different, you know, TV series. Um, that's really funny. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm sure there's a generation of people who, I mean, I probably for the first time heard about Peter Frampton from the Simpsons before I was like getting into that kind of music, but yeah, I, it's, he, he's, he's present. Um, all right, let's get to the verdict. And if you, uh, you know, Danielle uh, abstained from this part just because of her position on the nominating committee, you you can choose what you want to do, Alan. But it's, you know, should Peter Frampton get in the Hall of Fame? Uh, will he and will it be this year? Uh, and we can start with Kristen. And Kristen, you don't need to dwell on the first part of this question too, <laughs> for too long. Yeah. Well, and I won't. I mean, I've said it before. I think that Frampton seems like a cool guy. I understand why people like him. I understand all of that. Um when I put his three songs from the one album that are incredibly, you know, like still around and have a lot of longevity up against kind of, you know, the idea of, is this a hall of fame career? I, I think no. Um, and that is just, this feels to me a little bit like we're just really scraping out the seventies at this moment. And that, uh, you know, um, He's got a lot of goodwill from last year, and and I think like a lot of people would like to see him in, and um, you know, I, I but I, do I think he should get in? No, I, I'd rather there be more space for other people. But also, the hall is infinite. I don't care. Put him in. Um, the uh, will he get in? I think odds are good. I think the lane is pretty open for him right now. It really depends on how many voters have still a bad taste in their mouth based on kind of, you know, his decline. And Mm -hmm. also, it also depends on how many um, newer voters um, are familiar with him or have enough of an affinity with him, like how many of them grew up watching the Homer Palooza episode of of The Simpsons and are (laughs) like, oh, that guy, I can't believe he's not in. Because he does in some ways have that feeling of, Oh, that guy's not in. That's Which... how he announced his own nomination on his Twitter was, wait, I'm not already in the rock hall, which was a, a cheeky little reference to oh. that very phenomenon. And, and so that, so that I think bodes very well for him getting mm-hmm. in. Um, so I think he will get in this year. Um, okay. Uh, Alan, do you wish to participate? Uh, I mean, I, I'll, I'll say, I'm not going to answer between my involvement with Peter and my involvement with the Hall of Fame, I don't really know how to, you know. Yes. But I, it's such a, it's such an interesting and such a weird ballot this year. That's very, very. I mean, I don't know how you've been doing as you've been going through. I find it very hard to predict and anticipate how the, these votes are going to fall. Mm-hmm. In, you know, for almost everybody, I could see Oasis walking in, and I could see Oasis getting zero votes. That's, like both yeah. of those are totally plausible. To yes. Me. 
I think uh, you're right. And he is in an inch. He he does have kind of an open lane. You know, I think Kristen's absolutely right as a sort of 70s rock god, you know, foreigner a little bit, Aussie a little bit, but, you know, the not the full on hard, hard stuff yeah. um, that there's a that there's a space that's open for him. There's a lot of he's he's very well liked. Yes, he's very well you know respected. Again, he's worked with a lot of people we have not mentioned. And I, you know, I feel bad in a way mentioning it. But, you know, Peter's been really Peter's really sick. Mm-hmm. Um, he has this muscular degenerative disease um, that he did a farewell tour prior to 2020 um, because he felt like I'm not going to be able to keep playing well enough. He's like, I'll do it as long as I feel like I'm really representing myself up there, but I'm not going to go and play if I'm not up to it. Mm-hmm. And he did a full farewell tour and then came lockdown and everything else. And he came out and was like, you know what? I'm able to, I can keep going. And he's gone back out and done more dates you saw he played sitting down in the ceremony last year. He plays sitting down when he's touring. You know, he's walking with a cane, but he is well enough to still be out there and playing. You know, how do you, like, can you be heartless enough not to at least, you know, recognize the the emotional appeal of that? Um, but I think, you know, you ask the right questions, which are, A, those who are old enough to remember, to some of them, do they still feel like he's kind of a punchline from you know, what the seventies became. And for those who are younger, do they know who he is? Do they have a relationship to this guy? Those are a hundred percent the right things to ask and a hundred percent things that I don't know the answer to. Yeah. I mean, I I think that what you just said about being heartless, it's like the sympathy and like the, the ramping up from last year, I think really is going to result in him getting in. That is my prediction. I think everything we've said, like, how is he not already in? He just has the type of name recognition as a true rock and roll artist that is going to serve him lane clearing as well. Uh, And the fact that he's, he can still play, but you know, he, he's not in peak physical health. He's going to show up and you, you know, he's going to show up. Yeah. And we are going to all have feelings watching this person in decline. Who's still, you know, out there, like giving it their all and like, you know, putting their heart into the music. And it's and like, I a, will, yeah, it, I was I just going to say it's plug, a nice story. I'll just plug that. We did have Peter on our sound up podcast the week that the, the nominations were mm-hmm. announced. And I mean, not surprisingly, he just, you know, he couldn't have a better attitude about all of this. Yes, absolutely. Again, part of it, like part of it is, yeah, I guess I, you know, well, I'm not in already, but he's also like, look, I'm on and genuinely, I'm honored for this. The fact that I got this recognition while I'm here to get it, I take nothing for granted. I still have mm-hmm. another, you know, there's still another step in this process. And if it doesn't happen, you know, I'm going to be fine with that. Um, you know, he was his own you know, he was he was his own very uh, charming self mm-hmm. um, with a great spirit and a great attitude about this and and everything else. I mean, for having to having made peace with what the again, that the most dramatic rise and fall in rock and roll history was <laughs> to come out of that, pick up the pieces and figure out how to go on with your life puts you in a certain, you know, there's a certain kind of a mental state, I think, that you then go about the rest of your your days with. 
Yeah. And to continue to have a good to have a good attitude about it. It's just like he's a hard person to root against. That be, that being said, I don't exactly based on my own kind of measurements, I don't think he has had a Hall of Fame worthy career. I I think if you could criticize me in this show, it would be that I'm maybe a little too little too nice and I'm just like, yeah, sure, it's uh, you know, put them in, but you know, yep, I do think you have to draw a line somewhere. I think it is Three songs off of one album, that is the legacy. I don't think that is quite enough, but I am not going to be uh, mad if he gets in. I mean, like you say, I have a, I have a human heart. So like it'll, it'll, I think it'll be a great induction. Uh, and I, I know you got to get going, but quickly, when uh, he is inducted, whether it's this year or whatever, let's talk about who should give the speech to induct. I think there's some obvious people. You mentioned Cameron Crowe. That seems like someone who could, if he's not given the speech, he should at the very least be writing it. Uh, and then, you know, Cheryl Crow also, I mean, we got two crows. Oh, two crows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The crows are really leading the pack here. And you then know, the she, black crows, the black crows. Come back oh, up yeah. On stage. yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but you know, Cheryl uh, uh, nearly like that's, she started to give the speech a little bit, you know, when she yeah. was doing her own speech. I mean, that's so. what I feel like if you, if you ask Peter to choose, he would probably pick Cheryl to do it. I mean, I know that they're friendly, that he really has, you know, been very, very grateful for her support. Mm -hmm. and well, and you know, enthusiasm, he showed up for but, her, she'll show up for yeah, him. Yeah, but but I think that they I think it's too redundant. It's too close to last year. And the fact that she did already she talked about him in her speech, like mm -hmm. what's she gonna do? Say again, this was the first show I went to. Like she's already we've already heard that. Mm -hmm. So um that uh that's the only reason I would think that that it wouldn't be her is just too close to what we already got. Mm -hmm. um, Cameron would be fantastic if they feel like that's enough of a name and enough of a draw. Um, you know, and then you think about the others. I mean, so many of the people that he played, you know, obviously if he could choose anybody from the history of his life, it would have been Bowie. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, it's not that. Um, it's, you know, it's not going to be Ringo. But like that's, that, I was going to say that's an it, outside because he did do a year with the Ringo's All Star Band, and so that recorded you know recorded multiple times with Ringo, um, you know was in and then in that same set to, did, you know toured with the with the All Stars, um, you know that's again un unlikely for for any number of reasons, but you know that's out there, um, you know and again then I don't know if it's any of these again the sort of grunge guys who do talk about him. I mean the Pearl Jam guys recorded with him. Um, you know, the Soundgarden guys did, mm -hmm. um, you know, McCready and Matt Cameron and like those guys are all fans. Um, so that's not out yeah. of the realm. Well, you know, it's been a, it's been a while since we've gotten Eddie Vedder induction speech. He used to do it all the time. Uh, yeah. maybe it's time for him to come back. Or I guess I'm just like, is there a movie star who was kind of growing up in that time who could do like a Drew Barrymore, you know, or like Charlize, well, like, Charlize, yeah, uh, Charlize. Or, I mean, because of his, because of the almost famous thing would be the other, does that, mm -hmm. you know, does, does, Billy Crudup. Does Kate Hudson do well? Billy Crudup. Like, though, he was working hands on with Billy Crudup. I like, believe it. This is yeah. how you hold a guitar. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, those are, it's an ex it'd be an excuse to tell that story. Yeah. Um, and the kind of the last thing we, we usually talk about, which uh, maybe is a little bit redundant, which is like, would he play? I think what absolutely. And then what three songs? <laughs> ha ha ha. I think we know. I think the perfect, uh, you know, set list is the order they release you start with show me the way you do baby i love your way and then you end on the uh, jamming out to do you feel like we do i mean that's just 
I see no he other get, way. They ain't giving him the 14 minutes for it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll yeah. find a way to work at some of it. Um, and I think that's going to do it. Thank you, Alan, so much for for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. If you would like to plug anything, whether it's uh, sound up or the book or whatever. Yeah, book is too. I mean, the from this conversation, if you're a fan, maybe you're aware of Peter Frampton's book. Do you feel like I do? But if you want to know more, that's where to go. Um, our podcast, Sound Up with Mark Goodman and Alan Light, uh, comes out two times a week on all major podcast distributors and platforms. Um, and and if you uh, want to go back and hear Frampton talk about some of this stuff. Um, again, a couple of weeks ago, we had him on to do that. So you can still find that. And uh, otherwise, just grinding away. I love it. Well, we thank you so much uh, again. This was really, really great. Uh, our listeners know they can follow us at RockAllPod on Instagram and Twitter. Email us, RockAllPod at gmail.com. I believe by now when this is released, the Patreon might be live. We're going to start talking to voters and, and see who they're picking on their ballot. That will be available at Patreon.com slash RockAllPod. Uh, thank you to Mike Lloyd for the logo. You Kim for the music. And Pantheon Podcast for hosting us. I'm Joe Quazala. I'm Kristen Studdard. Who cares? About the rock hall. You almost screwed it up. I know. <laughs> <laughs>